Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty in the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. The New Testament reading is on page 744, Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Be great if you could keep uh, that part of God's word open in front of you. Uh, And let me add my welcome. Uh, It's great to have you amongst us as we uh, spend time looking at God's Word. Uh, Over the last few weeks we've been looking at uh, church and we now take the opportunity as we lead up to Easter looking at the one who founded the church, the one who established our faith uh, and we see him in all his kind of wonder and splendour and controversy. Uh, And so in many ways uh, I hope that it's a slightly disturbing look at Jesus uh, as we look again at what he really was and what he really did. How about we pray, though, that uh, the Lord our God would speak to us clearly. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, you and your kindness have not left us ignorant of you, but you've given us your word that we might know you. Uh, We thank you for the Lord Jesus who uh, gave up the comfort of heaven and lived amongst us. Uh, We thank you for his life, for his action, for his teaching, for his death and resurrection. And we thank you that by his spirit he speaks to us even now through your word. Uh, And Father, we ask now that you would quieten our hearts and minds, humble us before your word and speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, The film About a Boy, uh, which is from a a Nick Hornby novel and even more is a Hugh Grant movie that's actually watchable, uh, centres on a guy called Will Freeman. Uh, He's a self-interested 30-something uh, it opens with shots of Will enjoying his comfortable life and all the while his monologue running over the top of it. He says, in my opinion, all men are islands. And what's more, now's the time to be one. This is an island age. hundred years ago, you had to depend on other people. Uh, no one had TV or CDs or DVDs or videos or home espresso makers. Actually, they didn't have anything cool. Uh, Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. With the right supplies and the right attitude, you can be sun-drenched, tropical, a magnet. And I like to think that perhaps I am that kind of island. I like to think I'm pretty cool. I like to think I'm Ibiza. Uh, Will Will obviously takes the idea a little bit too far, but, but there's an appealing truth there, isn't there? Instinctively, we want to live in islands, cool islands. You know, we want to live in our, our bubbles of autonomy. You know, these little spheres that are our very own where our rules apply. And so we don't mind if other people parent differently to us, uh, but we don't want them telling us how we should do our job. You know, I was talking to someone this week about the, the complexities of uh, employing older workers. You know, their wisdom and experience is a great thing, uh, but they also carry baggage and opinions. That means they'll object to the way, you know, I want things done. We we like our life in these little autonomous bubbles. We're happy to watch others, but we're frustrated when they poke at the sphere we control and get in our way. 
And that's what makes Jesus such a controversial figure. He won't leave people in their comfortable, autonomous bubbles. I had another conversation this week. I asked a guy if he thought Jesus had any right to tell him how to live. And he told me um, I'd actually be better asking someone else because he wasn't a very religious person. Uh, he, he should go and ask somebody who's probably a Christian. So he thought that you know, him happily in his bubble, it was fine uh, where he was. Jesus shouldn't have any, any, any input. You know, it's all nice for Jesus to have input into the lives of people who already like Jesus, uh, just as long as Jesus didn't step into his life. And yet, what we just had read this morning from Laura uh, is exactly the opposite. That's not how Jesus views reality. He bursts those bubbles of autonomy. Uh, So much so that that the crowd who at one point hung off every word he had to say, they cry out against his teaching in 2016. May it never be. They get annoyed with him. They're frustrated with this controversial figure. Uh, And for us this morning, if you've got any pretensions about preserving a, a space where just your rules apply a place where your words are final, um, we might just find Jesus a little uncomfortable. So we pick up Luke's Gospel uh, with Jesus just having triumphantly come into Jerusalem uh, and he's just wept over the city. He wasn't weeping for himself, he was weeping for them, knowing not just what they'll do to him but the fact that they'll reject their opportunity for salvation. There's a tragic outcome. And he comes intentionally to raise a few hackles to courts and controversy. And all the action in in this section, the point we need to hear today is is not just that Jesus has authority, but that he's willing to assert it. Uh, First, he does it in God's household. Uh, Malachi promised the time when the Lord would come into his temple, his home, to refine and to destroy all ungodly practice. And so Jesus marches right into the symbolic heart of Israel. He goes to the earthly throne of God and he cleans out the sin And he establishes himself as he's the one with authority. As a boy, you might remember Jesus um, lost his earthly parents uh, because he was in, as he said to them, my father's house. And now as a man in 1947, uh, Luke 1947, not the year, (laughs) just in case you're wondering, uh, he's teaching there daily. He's establishing himself. He's asserting my authority is not just human, it is divine. And the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, they, they understood exactly what he was claiming. And he, they understood how he was bursting their kind of little autonomous bubbles, how he was trying to rip their position away from them. And so they challenged him directly, 20 verse 2. Um, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Uh, Jesus is always just a little bit too clever, but also uh, not afraid to give answers, but instead what he does better is he deflects the question, no, no, you tell me, where's John's baptism from? He's exposing them. So, so they go off and they scurry around and they talk amongst themselves, not to seek the, the truth, but to seek an answer that will serve their own purposes. And they can't, and so they forfeit all the claims they make to be seekers of truth and they forfeit the claims they make to be teachers of the truth. So they're exposed as having no real authority. Like modern politicians, um, they show that you know, they're only willing to lead in the direction they've already worked out the people want to head, you know, which is essentially following. <laughs> it's the populist approach. They don't have authority, they're people pleasers, they're people manipulators. And at the same time, that's the very opposite of Jesus. He is willing to say whatever 
He's willing to court that controversy because he's a real leader. He, he locates his authority as divine. So his authority, he wants to make clear, is heavenly. You, you want to understand me, you need to understand how it comes in John's prophecy. He set it up. And, and it's not enough. Christ then goes on the front foot. He wants to assert not just that his authority is divine, but that his authority is ultimate. So he draws on that story from Isaiah 5 that Dean read to us. Uh, Israel, they're likened to uh, a vineyard. God had established, God had cared for, but they never produced fruit. Uh, instead, there was unrighteousness. Jesus t- takes that parable and tweaks it. Uh, and he uses it as an, a, an aggressive attack on those who will oppose his authority. So what, what's striking about the parable uh, is not just a punch of verse 16 that the tenants will be killed and the vineyard given to others, but that Jesus follows it up. Verse 17, 20 verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them and he asked, then what's the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And the leaders, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. See, what Jesus does here is unnecessary. If you know the way Jesus normally tells a story, he tells a parable and he leaves it hanging for you to go and work out the implications for yourself. But the defeated son of that parable is not the finish. So he stares at the leaders. Luke notes where he looks. He's direct at them. He stares at these leaders who who were the tenants, who had responsibility for God's vineyard. And, And he draws on this kingly psalm, Psalm 118, and he explains how the one that they rejected will actually come back and crush them. So Christ comes into uh, the city as a king. He flexes his authority in the face of sin at the temple and in the face of those who think that he has no claim on them and and those who, in 1947, again, not the year, they were looking to kill him. Those who, in 2019, were looking to arrest him. I couldn't help thinking of the parallels with uh, the tragic death of uh, the SeaWorld trainer Dawn Broncho this week. Uh, If you missed the story... In front of this watching crowd at SeaWorld, used to being entertained by, by you know, dolphins and orcas doing great tricks, uh, this orca grabbed Dawn's ponytail, uh, the trainer's ponytail, and dragged her underwater to her death. And, and it turned out that this killer whale had actually been involved in two previous human fatalities. Now, here is clearly a powerful and dangerous beast, and yet... People keep thinking they can control it. Trainers keep thinking, we can turn this into something for our pleasure and our enjoyment. Uh, we, we, can, we can master this, assuming that they've got the kind of power and authority to keep this in check. But in an instant, it turned and destroyed. You know, Christ is making it clear he's got the authority. Uh, he's not some weak, feeble figure, as you kind of think of the Jesus of Easter. He's not weak and feeble. No, no, he's coming in, he has authority, and he will unstoppably assert it. Uh, and for people who enjoy the comfort of autonomous bubbles, this pokes and this prods, uh, in two, two ways to highlight. First of all, it means we no longer will ever, we no longer get the last word, ever. We, we, we will never get the last word. Yeah, even for those of us who, who love the Bible and, uh, uh, and enjoy reading it, uh, we're tempted to read it and weigh it and 
give our account of it. So when we gather with other people, you know, connect groups or elsewhere to read the word, we're tempted to think that the Bible is the starting point for us to give our last word on, when it's actually the opposite that's true. Yeah, especially in those areas that are countercultural, where we're tempted to weigh what Jesus has to say and see if he's right or not. Uh, so last weekend, I know the Women's Teaching Morning looked at a passage of scripture uh, that talked about the distinctive nature and, and roles of men and women. I don't know what was said. I, um, as a bloke, I wasn't there. Uh, but I'm sure the temptation was there to view 1 Timothy 2 as an interesting starting point on a topic to be evaluated rather than seeing 1 Timothy 2 and how it evaluates us. Now, I don't want us to be stopped being uh, you know, careful readers of the word. I don't want us to be mindless uh, and foolish. We need to actually handle the word carefully, but we need to handle it knowing that it is our judge, not the other way around. You know, Christ has authority. He has the last word. I was encouraged this week, I caught a glimpse of um, the ABC, ABC show, uh, The Hungry Beast. Uh, and uh, they had a, um, a story on gay conversion, uh, which is appropriate kind of, I suppose, leading up to the celebrations our city has this weekend. Uh, amongst the people interviewed was a Christian guy called Hayden. Uh, now, Hayden had lived an actively homosexual lifestyle, but now he was married and had children. Uh, and he spoke about how the attraction to men was still there, but he had decided to make a decision to obey God's design for marriage. He was a man that understood that just because he had a natural desire to express sexuality in in a certain way, that that actually wasn't enough. The way God asks us to express our sexuality, whether we're homosexual or heterosexual, is in the pattern of marriage that he set down. And he was a man who was willing on national television to say uh, that Christ had the authority, that Christ had the final word, even on the most intimate and personal of issues. And when you see that that Christ makes claims and he has no limit to those claims. You know, the walls of your autonomous bubble just have to break at his word. Uh, not because Jesus is this harsh lawgiver, uh, but by God's spirit, you know, Hayden developed what we all need to cultivate, a heart that inclines to obeying God. Now, it's been said of the English Puritans that they saw the goal of church as imagination. Uh, they didn't mean by that imagining you know, something that wasn't real or you know, perhaps imagining you weren't there. Uh, rather, they meant it in the sense of vividly seeing yourself in a position of making a choice and seeing that the only sensible decision was choosing obedience to God. Now, just try and think of the number of decisions you make each day. And in each one, Christ has the right to that final word. Secondly, we've got to realise that disaster awaits those who defy the authority of Christ. Uh, it, it, it might be uncomfortable, uh, but we can't escape the language of doom for those who reject Jesus' claims. Uh, the parable sees the tenants killed. Uh, the quote from Psalm 118 sees them broken to pieces and crushed. The uncomfortable edge of Jesus' authority is that it leaves no room for rivals. That's why it's controversial, isn't it? That the eternal fate of those around us is dire. Those who know but will not accept the Lordship of Christ. For the stone they reject, you know, that's the stone that can save them, but otherwise it will come to crush them. 
Uh, and perhaps that, that exposes our hearts and our attitudes even more than knowing he has the last word. Uh, did you notice the crowd's response in verse 16 to his story? May it not be so, they cried out. Now, it's possible that the whole of the story, they just didn't like all of Jesus' parable, but it seems more likely they're outraged at the fact that judgment will fall on these tenants because it's, it's only after that part of the story they decide to interject and cry out against what Jesus is saying. You know, they're exposed for actually being more concerned for their fellow sinners than they are about the rejected saviour. And maybe that's a little where our hearts are at. Yeah, our society wants to keep enticing us with the prospect of no divine authority and no eternal judgment. So Jean-Paul Sartre suggested that if we did away with God, we'd do away with sin. Uh, the idea being that without an authority to rebel against, there'd be no rebellion. Yeah, a Nobel Prize winning poet, uh, Milos, I can't say his first name, uh, wrote an essay, The Discreet Charms of Nihilism. Uh, he recalls how Karl Marx uh, had called religion the opiate of the masses. You know, Marx's idea was that uh, religion dulled the senses. The promise of an afterlife where you get things better would allow oppression to keep going on and no one would complain because, oh, we'll get our payoff if we're good, and, you know, good little people here and now. Uh, he picks up that idea, but Milos says, now we're witnessing a transformation. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals and greed, cowardice and murder are not going to be judged. But all religions recognise our deeds are imperishable. So the, the cry of the crowd in Jesus' day at the prospect of divine judgment is, is the same as our age. You know, may it not be so. People are more concerned for the fate of, of fellow sinners probably because the appeal of no judgment is pure selfishness. Uh, you know, the appeal that if no one's judged, well, then my sin won't be judged. And so I'm free to sin. But history has proven that the rejection of God, whether you go communism left or Nazism on the right, hasn't led to a less brutal society. You know, on the radio this week, they were commenting on the uh, obscenities, on those Facebook tributes to uh, the tragically murdered children, um, Elliot Fletcher and Trinity Bates. And there was this, uh, a non-Christian commentator on the radio uh, wondering, are humans just so depraved that given anonymity... Given the prospect they won't get caught and won't get judged, they do that kind of cruelty and obscenity. Uh, and it seems to be the answer is yes. You know, those autonomous bubbles of unchecked sin, they're not going to fix the world's problems. And so at whatever scale it occurs, the rejection of Christ, the one who will actually bring real restoration, the one who will bring real justice, that's the tragedy we should be crying out at, that rejection of him. So if, if we truly grasp the serious danger of those who reject him, we wouldn't spend time questioning the system, railing against what he might do, but rather we'd persuade others to acknowledge it. For that's the real grief, the rejection of him. Jesus, yes, he will assert his authority, but he'll do it patiently and mercifully. It's the word of comfort that I want, I suppose, us to leave with, that Jesus asserts his authority patiently and mercifully. So if you scan back over the passage, you'll actually see there's an undercurrent of mercy. 
Uh, the motivation behind Jesus um, asserting his authority at the temple, clearing it out. Why? It's, as we saw in the kids' talk, it's to, to clear it up, open up as a place of prayer for the nations. The problem was not so much the sales, but where the sales were occurring. Uh, those outer courts were there for, for non-Jews, people like you and me, to come and pray. Uh, but the stalls were stopping that. And so Jesus, out of love, asserts his authority so that we could access him. Now, even the parable is designed to, to balance the, the harsh, harsh conclusion with this kind of stretched-out patience. Uh, so uh, the original vineyard story, uh, there's kind of no delay in Isaiah 5 where the judgment just comes swiftly. But Jesus tweaks that. Uh, in 20 verse 9, the owner goes away for a long time. Uh, the distance doesn't matter. It's the fact that he's away for a long time. Timing's what matters. Uh, the drama increases. There's a mistreatment of the servant. So uh, it's escalating. 1 verse 10, the first servant, he was beaten and sent away empty-handed. In verse 11, the second servant gets beaten, treated shamefully, sent, it empty, sent away empty-handed. The third, in verse 12, gets wounded, thrown out. Uh, this time of judgment is being stretched. There's warning after warning after warning. And when it comes to his son, in verse 13, there's still deliberation. What should I do? He's stretching it out patiently. Even in that final judgment, he doesn't take back the vineyard, but rather gives it to others to enjoy. Yes, this story has great themes of, of divine care and human treachery and resurrection and responsibility, but, but overall of it, it's patience, the mercy of God, who delays and delays and delays to assert that authority. As someone commenting on this passage wrote, mercy we shall find was indeed God's darling attribute. He delighteth in mercy. Mercies before conversion, mercies after conversion. Mercies at every step of the journey on earth will be revealed to the minds of saved saints and make them ashamed of their own thanklessness. Sparing mercies, providential mercies, mercies in the way of warnings, mercies in the way of sudden visitations will all be set forth in order before the minds of lost sinners and confound them by the exhibition of their own hardness and unbelief we shall all find that God was often speaking to us when we didn't hear, sending us messages which we didn't regard. See, God's great theme is mercy and patience. It was brought home to me uh, this week visiting a member of our 8am congregation who's uh, in hospital. Uh, when I met with her, rather than her complaining about her situation, uh, she was giving thanks for God's provision of friends who'd looked out for her. She'd had, had a fall um, and she missed a, a commitment to a fellowship group. These friends noted her absence, and when they couldn't get through to her on the phone, they contacted other people who could go and check on her. Uh, it meant that she got treated as soon as she was, and she saw not cause for complaint, but she saw the hand of God acting mercifully. She understood what God is like. She understood his provision. Yes, Christ will assert his authority, but it's not going to be impulsive. It will be merciful and patient. Now, he is going to challenge your autonomous bubble in the day-to-day -day of life. He's going to poke and prod at you about whether you're doing this for his service. But he'll be merciful in the times you don't listen. In the trials and trauma of life, he is graciously poking people to turn back to him. And none of us are islands. Uh, if we claim to be... In our own little bubble, it's going to be destined to failure. Uh, but to see the authority of Christ in every aspect of life, to acknowledge it, that's real hope, that is real life, that is real comfort, that is a real share in the vineyard, the joy that he wants to share. 
Uh, Psalm 118 goes on, I'll give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done it and it's marvellous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's give thanks for the authority of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you that uh, he will one day assert completely his authority. We thank you uh, that his authority is divine and ultimate. We thank you most of all that uh, he asserts it mercifully and patiently. Father, we pray that you would keep being patient with us, forgiving our frailties. And Father, we pray that you would be patient with those around us who know of Christ but haven't yet accepted him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.